the Holy Spirit. The Palestinian reigns. This is number one in a new series in which we will take up the third person of the Godhead. In this discussion, we shall discover the spiritual lessons to be found in what took place at Pentecost. But first, let us pray. Our loving Father, as we begin this new series to learn more about the third person of the Godhead, we ask that thou wilt send the Holy Spirit to awaken our minds to our greatest need for this the mighty power to prepare our hearts for the coming latter rain experience. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Turning to scripture, we read in Acts, the second chapter, verses 1 to 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house. <clears throat> where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, can you picture with me this most thrilling event the disciples had been waiting and praying for days for this precious gift. They believed that in faith it was time to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when suddenly the Infinite One revealed Himself as if this power had been held in restraint, for now it comes in its fullness. And the results were amazing. Human lips brought forth words of penitence, confession, mingled with songs of praise for sins forgiven. The disciples grasped this imparted gift, and the sword of the Spirit became edged with divine power, cutting through stubborn unbelief. Thousands were converted in a day. But before we go on, let's go back in time about 30 years. You will remember the words of the angels in announcing the Savior's birth. I'm reading Luke 2:14, in which they said, Glory to God in the highest. Now, why did they use those words? Think about it. This actually was an announcement of the soon coming coronation of Christ that was to take place after the crucifixion and ascension of Jesus. 
Christ was to be glorified with glory which he had with the Father throughout all past eternity. Let me read to you from Acts of the Apostles, page 39. The Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. According to his promise, he had sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to his followers as a token that he had, as priest and king, received all authority in heaven and on earth, and was the anointed one over his people. So this is the reason why Peter so boldly declared on the day of Pentecost that the convicting, converting power which thousands felt pounding in their hearts was incontestable proof that this was the Holy Spirit sent at Christ's request with all its marvelous power. So much for the introduction. Now let us see how God prefigured the outpouring of his Holy Spirit in prophecy by using such words as the early and the latter rain. In the Mediterranean lands, during the hot summer months, there is scarcely a trace of moisture to fall. Great cracks and fissures appear in the scorched earth. But with the coming of autumn, you will find lots of showers putting man into activity. Now he plows and harrows the softened soil and sows the seed. Every Palestinian farmer knows that if he neglects to prepare the soil first and fails to plant the seed, there will be no harvest, no matter how much rain comes at a later date. For in Palestine, the growing season extends through the winter months with many copious showers. Finally, the spring rains come to furnish the necessary moisture, which must fall to fill out and to bring to a head the barley kernels. Now this is why the scripture uses the term the early rain that falls at seed sowing time and the latter rain which just precedes the harvest. Thus God was able to illustrate the two great spiritual seasons of refreshing that brings power sent from God. Historically, the spiritual early rain began to fall 50 days after the Passover Sabbath in A.D. 31, at which time there were 120 faithful believers who had remained in Jerusalem 
in obedience to Christ's command. They were making the necessary preparations for the outpouring. Now, I trust you are ready to do some very serious thinking. I have a question. What kept the nearly 400 other professed believers who had recently met with the risen Christ in the mountains for many days after his resurrection, what kept them from joining with the 120 in the upper room? Why were they not present? Shall I tell you? I believe it's time to speak plainly. I believe it was the same old obstacles that will prevent the reception of the latter rain, the same hindrances that we are experiencing today of not taking the necessary time to pray, study, confess our sins, seek forgiveness, and time to praise God. This, you see, is how we grow in grace and develop victorious characters. Apparently, only 120 out of the 500 professed believers were willing to make the sacrifice and to prepare. These are very sobering thoughts to ponder. Approximately three-fourths of Christ's professed believers did not experience the outpouring at Pentecost. What a lesson for us today. The Bible offers ample instructions concerning the required preparations that are so necessary if we are to receive the harvest rains. So many, the larger part of our church, is failing to make the preparations to receive the promise and will be among those who will be wailing and lost. We are told that they will cry, and I am reading Jeremiah 8.20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. What a tragedy that is developing within the church before our very eyes. Now, let's look at the falling of the harvest rain experience, which will bring maturity to the fruits of the Spirit. It will be the climax of some 6,000 years of God's evangelistic crusade, which began in Eden and continued down through the centuries. And soon, so very soon, it will end with the last invitation given, the last call to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we consider this spiritual lesson, we must not overlook 
the fierce opposition that confronts our church today. I don't like to talk about these things, but the faithful must be alerted as to what is taking place. For the synagogue of Satan is seizing the initiative. Every wind of doctrine is blowing upon God's people. New Age Spiritism is being preached by some pastors in their hypnotic teaching, which can be traced to the Jesuits. Situation Ethics is often acclaimed today as being the in thing. Our presses are producing books of a new order which teach that in this life it is impossible to cease to sin. And we are being ensnared by what is unholy drama performed from the holy pulpit. Distinctive truths are being minimized Pressure is being applied to join the ecumenical movement. We have some pulpits that are being opened to the beast power of Revelation 13, the man of sin. At the last general conference in 1995 in Holland, the structure gave adoration to the papacy by parading the Vatican flag across the platform in a tremendous applause. And I am sorry to say that we have institutions now who are being joined with the papal power. Celebration worship that was planned by Vatican II Council is being encouraged from the highest levels. The result? We have become benumbed to urgency. The majority are engrossed with secular entertainment, occupied with carnal amusements, until we have become sterile, barren, and empty with little or no relish for spiritual food. And the devil knows that if God should give to this people under the circumstances that I have just listed, if he should pour out the latter rain, he would be stamping his approval upon these inconsistencies. The devil also knows that the vast majority among us are sound asleep, and such will never take the final step to total commitment for God. No wonder God wrote to us through his prophet Jeremiah in the fifth chapter, 23 and 24, this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. Neither say they in their hearts, Let us now fear the Lord our God, 
that giveth rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. In such apostasy, they are not preparing for the Pentecostal power that is needed today. And so I say, wake up, wake up, for we are faced with a total war. We must have more than a profession of faith, for without the promised power of the Holy Spirit, we are inviting personal disaster. God has warned of this throughout the scriptures. In Galatians 6, 7, we are told, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the Apostle Paul further insists in Galatians 6, 8, for he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now this all leads us to another question. When does the final reaping take place? I'm going to let Jesus answer that. I'm reading Matthew 13, 39, in which he said, The harvest is the end of the world. We must conclude, therefore, that the same latter rain that produces the spiritual harvest will also release the devil's fury. In Revelation 14, we find the three angels' messages. But in reality, there are six angels that are mentioned. And all six have to do with the harvest rain. The first three proclaim the last judgment-bound message to this generation. They are like the thunder and the lightning which precede the rainstorm. But the fourth the fifth and the sixth angel have to do with the gathering of two harvests. The first harvest is of those who accept God's claims. And the last harvest has to do with those who reject God's claims. Now notice the fourth angel. I'm reading Revelation 4.15 crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. What does he say? Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the harvest is ripe. Now this has to do with those who have prepared themselves and are sealed. This is the harvest of the wheat to be taken and given everlasting life. But notice the fifth and sixth angels. These two angels call to the Lord also to reap, but they are to reap the lost souls. 
and cast them, it says in Revelation 14, 19, into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, with these known facts before us of what is about to take place, no wonder the Bible speaks of the condition that is to prevail among his people in the last days. I'm reading from the book of Jude, verse 12 and 13. Notice these words. Clouds that are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, forming, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. This is a very serious condition, and it is telling of a prolonged spiritual drought without refreshing rain. Now, what is God warning, of us, warning us of in such language? I'll tell you. He's trying to tell us to stay away from teachers who are preaching without spiritual moisture to make your soul grow. And the Lord exposes such in these words. I'm reading Matthew 7:20. By their fruits ye shall know them. And may I add, or by their lack of fruits. The people of the Mideast speak of water as a gift of God. Both the Old and the New Testament symbolize water with the Holy Spirit. I'm reading Isaiah 44, 3. Notice, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. Now, what is Isaiah trying to tell us? Notice the next words. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. And you remember how Christ in the temple was trying to arouse his people in John 7, verse 38 and 39, when he cried, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And what was Christ talking about? The next verse, next verse explains it. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. In fact, old Israel's temporal prosperity was dependent upon the early and the latter rain, which in turn was dependent upon Israel's obedience. Israel's temporal prosperity always reflected her spiritual condition. I'm reading Deuteronomy 
11, verse 13 and 14. It shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in due season, the first rain, and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil. And don't forget, God has never rescinded this prerequisite, for in order to receive spiritual blessings symbolized by the rain, we must render obedience to his commands. As we look about us today, we see a rocket-like swiftness, the closing events that are careening toward the final crisis. The coming battle will not be man against man, but Satan's kingdom against Christ's kingdom. In this war of wars, any individual found without the Holy Spirit will discover that victory for him is absolutely impossible. Speaking of this end-time struggle, we read in letter number 8, 1896, evil had been accumulating for centuries and could only be resisted by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Another spirit must be met, for the essence of evil was working in all ways, and the submission of man to this satanic capacity was amazing. And now listen to this. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, wherein in time past we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And add to this 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusions, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you see, we are faced with a total war of iniquity, but those who will allow themselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit will defy such apostasy, and under the Spirit's guidance they will scatter to preach the everlasting gospel just as the disciples did after Pentecost. As the soil 
was worked by the Palestinian farmer. So the harvest fruit must be cultivated and the seed, the word of God, implanted. In Review and Herald, March 14, 1912, the fulfilling of the signs of the times gives evidence that the day of the Lord is near at hand. The crisis is stealing gradually upon us. The sun shines in the heavens, passing over its usual round. The heavens still declare the glory of God. Men are still eating and drinking, planting and building, marrying and giving in marriage. Merchants are still buying and selling. Pleasure lovers are still crowding horse races, gambling hells. The highest excitement prevails. Yet, probation's hour is fast closing, and every case is about to be eternally decided. Satan sees that his time is short. He has set all his agents to work. What men may be, that men may be deceived, deluded, occupied, and entrenched until the day of probation shall be ended and the door of mercy be forever shut. The time of trouble such as never was in Daniel 12.1 is soon to open upon us and we shall need an experience which many are too indolent to obtain. Now, while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold. Some sinful desire is cherished by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, The prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. John 14.30 Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his Father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. And now comes the striking words. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. Unquote. And let us not forget another lesson. No matter how powerful the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be in the latter rain, it will do us absolutely no good if we have fallow ground that has not been cultivated and every wrong act plowed under. 
the family altar must be maintained. There must be a penetrating study of God's Word, a personal seeking for the Holy Spirit. Only thus will we smother the weeds, the briars, and the brambles. Thank God he will have a remnant within the remnant church who will be filled with the latter rain, a people who will triumph. For we read in Isaiah 4, 2 and 3, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. And now our closing thought. Do not forget that only a hundred and twenty of some five hundred received the early rain at Pentecost. Will we be among those who will receive the latter rain because we have prepared? Let us pray. Our loving Father, Forgive our laxness in failing to plow earnestly the fields of our mind in preparation for the latter rain. O oh God, help us to redeem the time with an awareness that every moment counts as we now surrender to thy Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Now before we listen to Sonny Lou, let me read a poem composed by Charlotte Mathis of Mayfield, Kentucky. She titled this poem, What Will I Do Then? Listen. When Christ's work in heaven is finished and the judgment is over and done, what will I do then, I wonder, when there's no place left to run? When revelation's plagues start to fall and there's no place from them to hide, will I cry to the rocks and the mountains and in their fastness seek to abide? If I've failed to make preparation in these times of comparative peace. What will I do then, I wonder, when it's too late to fall on my knees? How can I stand in God's presence if my soul with sin is then stained? What will I do then, I wonder, if victory over self I have not gained. Now, 
while his patience yet lingers, I must accept his cup of salvation. Else, what will I do then? I wonder if I have not made full consecration. You'll find his 